I encourage you to open your copies of the Scriptures to Mark chapter 6 this morning. Mark chapter 6. So, New Testament. And the first book of the New Testament is the Gospel of Matthew, and then the very next book, so second book in the New Testament is the Gospel of Mark, and we are in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14 this morning. And I just want to say to you right up front here, this is going to be a very difficult sermon to hear. And I know that because it's going to be a very difficult sermon for me to preach. John the Baptist loses his head. It is a grotesque and graphic scene. But it is an essential scene for us. One of the great reasons I believe in the authenticity, the inerrancy, and the inspiration of this book is because of scenes like this. Because there are men and women who we just read about from Hebrews chapter 11 who are so convinced of the reality and the authenticity of Jesus Christ that they are willing to lay down their lives for that message. If this book is a sham, if we are being duped by these human writers into believing that what they are saying is true, then the very ones who lived alongside of those who wrote this book would not have given their lives for this book. So let's take it all in. As hard as it is to hear, as hard as it is to preach this morning, kings and kingdoms from Mark chapter 6 beginning in verse 14. You follow along in your copies of God's Word, please. King Herod heard of it, that is, he heard of Jesus' name, because Jesus' name was becoming known in the region of Galilee in northern Israel. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in Jesus. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when Herod heard him, he was greatly perplexed by him, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. 
And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the shocking word of our God. You may not know the name Sir Robert Watson Watt, but each time you see a police officer patrolling the streets here in Schaumburg, you're aware of his invention. It is the radar. Ironically, while driving in Canada, Sir Robert Watson Watt was pulled over for speeding in a radar trap. Here's what he later wrote about that event. Pity Sir Robert Watson Watt, strange target of his radar plot, and thus with others I could mention, a victim of his own invention. That's King Herod right here in Mark chapter 6. A victim of his own invention, trapped by a rash and pompous promise to give his stepdaughter anything she wants. But let's not miss that there's something deeper happening right here in this dark scene. It's what we discovered last week, that we're engaged in this ongoing cosmic collision between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And in this text, we see that long before that war plays out publicly, it plays out internally on the turf of our hearts, in our own conscience. Now, I want to be clear right up front here about what the conscience is and what the conscience does. John MacArthur has defined the conscience this way. It's the built-in warning system that signals us when we've done wrong. The conscience is to our souls what pain sensors are to our bodies. It inflicts distress in the form of guilt whenever we violate what our hearts tell us is right. How many of you remember back to literature class and reading Edgar Allan Poe? Do you remember his short story with a lasting impact entitled The Telltale Heart? The Telltale Heart is the story where the main character murders a man and then hides his body beneath the floor. But the murderer is so tormented by his own conscience that when the police shows up, he begins hearing what he thinks is the dead man's heart beating beneath the floor. Of course, the dead man's heart is not beating. It's the murderer's conscience screaming with every beat of his own heart until it's no longer bearable and he confesses to his crime. The conscience, the human heart, the human conscience is a powerful thing. And that's why the big idea of this text is that this text is a call for each of us to live with a constant awareness of the kingdom war that's being waged right now within our hearts. Because the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. 
You see, there were probably times this past week or this past month or this past year when you were tempted to take your own life into your own hands, to act like you were the king of your own kingdom and to forget your calling as a child of God. There were times maybe where the things of this world looked more attractive to you than the things of God. That's times where God's kingdom clashed with your kingdom and you chose to do things your own way. And this morning, your conscience, if you were honest, is tormenting you and dogging you. That's what's happening right here as this scene opens in verse 14, where we learn that a guilty conscience will haunt us. It's King Herod. Now, technically, King Herod is not a king. He's a tetrarch. He's a a governor appointed by Rome over the region of Galilee in northern Israel. He's a son of Herod the Great. Now, you know Herod the Great because Herod Herod the Great is the king when Jesus is born. He's the one who kills all the baby boys around Bethlehem. And ironically, not too long after that event... Herod the Great is on his deathbed, where he divides his kingdom among his three sons, one of whom is Herod Antipas, and that's the Herod that Mark is speaking of now. Now, there's something you need to know about Herod Antipas, something that will happen later on after the death of Jesus, when Herod's wife, her name is Herodias, and we'll meet her in just a few moments in the text, but she convinces Herod Antipas to begin referring to himself as king of his own kingdom, which, by the way, gets him in big trouble with the Roman emperor. And so Mark is probably being a bit tongue-in-cheek here, a bit sarcastic here, when he leads verse 14 off with this, King Herod. You know, the man who thought himself king, but really wasn't king. But while the real king, King Jesus, is making a serious impact in the region of Galilee. It hasn't been long since Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Jesus' popularity is growing. People are talking. And now with the 12 disciples out on mission, the word of Jesus is spreading throughout all of Galilee, all the way to Herod's palace. The message of Jesus is making inroads all through Galilee. And so the big question floating around that region is this. Who really is this Jesus? Who is this guy? I mean, they've seen lame people walking and blind people seeing and deaf people hearing and now dead people living. So they can't deny the power of Jesus. But they can't explain it either. And they're having a hard time grasping this and, 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 and getting their mind wrapped around what Jesus is claiming. That he is the Messiah. That he is the Son of God in the flesh. And so they begin asking amongst themselves, is Jesus Elijah from the Old Testament? Is Jesus just another Old Testament prophet in the line of Old Testament prophets? But Herod has his own explanation. He believes that Jesus is actually John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now, to us, that sounds so weird and bizarre, right? But Herod's conscience 
is tormenting him because he's lopped off the head of John the Baptist. You remember John the Baptist. We met John the Baptist back in Mark chapter 1. He's that eccentric, grizzly Adams kind of character who lives out in the desert, who eats locusts and wild honey. He is the forerunner to the Messiah. He is the one who publicly calls people out to trust in the Messiah, to repent of their sins and embrace Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is that light pointing to Jesus, calling people to believe on Jesus, repenting of their sins. And that's a message that John would preach boldly and loudly and relentlessly. He couldn't be bought or bullied or shushed, even when it came to King Herod, after he falls in love with his half-brother's wife, Herodias, and then commits adultery with her, and then dumps his first wife and marries Herodias. And John doesn't mince any words about Herod's actions. He calls on Herod to repent of his adultery, and that ticks his new wife, Herodias, off. She wants John's head. Because as they say, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. That's Herodias. And she would have had John's head, but her husband wouldn't allow it. He knew John was a righteous man, and so to appease his wife and to protect John's life, Herod throws John in prison. And then, then he sneaks down to the dungeon in his own palace for late-night conversations and devotions with John. He's intrigued by John. He's kind of captivated by John's message. This is John the Baptist, the most popular preacher of his day. John the Baptist was to Israel what Billy Graham was to America. But there's this kind of, this this weird kind of love-hate relationship going on between Herod and John. On the one hand, Herod hates being called out by John, but on the other hand... Herod's strangely attracted to John's message because it isn't just a message of repentance. It's a promise of mercy because with repentance comes mercy. You remember Proverbs 28, verse 13? Whoever conceals his... By the way, I always wondered myself things like this. But I was preparing, as I was preparing this this week, I wondered to myself, did John the Baptist ever take Herod to Proverbs 28, verse 13? Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but who, he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Repentance and mercy. That's what makes Herod's response to John so bizarre. But that's how guilty people act when the kingdom of God encroaches upon their kingdom. They find the prospect of forgiveness and mercy so captivating while finding the message of repentance so revolting. That's Herod here. Toying with the truth. 
flirting with the prospect of forgiveness. But he won't personalize the guilt-overcoming mercy God offers him. He won't repent of the sin that's haunting him. Many of you know that I am a huge fan of chocolate chip cookies. And did you notice the last couple of weeks, fall seems to be just around the corner? The morning's getting a little crisper and cooler. And during the fall, on one of those cool, crisp days, when I open the back door to our home and am hit with the heavenly aroma of chocolate chip cookies baking in the oven, there is nothing in this world like it. I'm pretty convinced that's what heaven is going to smell like. And when I open the door, my, my mouth begins watering, my taste buds begin dancing, even though I'm a Baptist preacher. Especially when Joanna pulls those cookies out of the oven and places them on the counter right in front of me. And there I stand, just taking it all in, captivated by it all. The sight of those melting chocolate chips nestled sm- uh, snugly in the soft melt-in-your-mouth dough all wrapped in that unforgettable aroma. And there I stand, admiring the cookies, flirting with the cookies, captivated by the cookies, but never taking and never reaching out to take one. You say, Pastor Ken, that would never be you. You're right. But that's Herod here. Taking it all in, the sweetness of God's mercy, surrounded by it, the sights, the sounds. Maybe that's you. I'm thankful you're here. And some of you come almost every Sunday. You're attracted to the sights and the sounds, the aroma of God's people worshiping. And you find the message of God's mercy and grace so appealing. But you're disconnected from it. You're a spectator because you haven't reached out and taken it. You haven't personalized God's offer of mercy and grace in Jesus. You haven't taken it for yourself. You're you're like Herod here. You're so close yet so far away. He hears about the sweetness of God's mercy. But he won't reach out in faith and take hold of that grace. Instead, he'll try working through his guilt by working off his guilt. Now, we don't see that in the English Standard Version, but it's there in the Old King James Version because near the end of verse 20, and you can look to the screen, the King James Version says this, When Herod heard John, he did many things. He tried to work his way out of those guilty feelings. He tried to make up for his sin by doing lots of good things to cover his sin. That's still many people today, isn't it? They're trying to do enough good to wipe out the guilt of their bad. But it doesn't work that way. It can't work that way. It never will work that way. Let me show you. Let's imagine you're leaving for vacation 
And for three hours straight after you get out of the, the, the traffic here in Chicagoland, you set your car's cruise on 70 miles per hour. Three hours straight. 200 miles. You're obeying the law the entire time. But then you start doing the math. You realize that unless you up your speed, you aren't going to reach your destination on time. And you convince yourself that doing 85 or 90 isn't that big of a deal because, frankly, everybody else is doing it. And so you reset your cruise to 87 miles per hour. And off you go. Until just a mile down the road, just a mile, you notice in your rearview mirror red lights flashing. And when the officer approaches your vehicle and asks you this, how fast were you going? You say, well, for the past three hours, I've been going 70. And he says, well, that wasn't the question. But sir, but sir, I've been going 87 for just a mile. Doesn't all that time perfectly obeying the speed limit make up for the one mile I broke the speed limit? And if not, officer, know this, that for the next five hours, I will drive 70 miles per hour. So doesn't that eight hours of driving 70 wipe out the one mile I drove 87? And we all know the answer. No, it doesn't. Law-breaking and law-keeping don't work that way. We know down deep within our hearts and in our conscience that no amount of law-keeping can wipe out our law-breaking. Only Jesus can because only Jesus is without sin. Only Jesus obeyed God's law at every turn and in every way. And that's why it's essential that He dies in our place. Amen? Only First Peter 3, verse 18 says it so simply that he suffers once for sins. The righteous in the place of the unrighteous. The law keeper in the place of law breakers. Why? So that he might bring us to God. You know why? He has to bring us to God because we can't come to God on our own. Not through law keeping because we are already law breaking. And so the law keeper has to die in the place of, of law breakers so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. And that's why Titus 3 verse 5 says, it's not by works of righteousness that we have done. It's according to his mercy, his mercy that he saves us. You believe that? Or do you find yourself in the same place Herod is here? You're haunted by a guilty conscience and your way of working yourself out of that is to work for that. Listen. What you do, what you give, who you are will never be enough to undo what sin has done in you. But I say to you this morning that Jesus and Jesus alone is enough. 
for you? Will you reach out this morning by grace alone, through faith alone, and take hold of that mercy alone? He has done what you can't. He has been who you aren't. And He comes and He lives and He dies so that He might bring us to God. The Bible says that if you will repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, you will be saved. Would you come to Him this morning? Jesus is the only cure for a conscience that haunts us. And that's the setup for what happens next where we learn that a seared Conscience will consume us. It's Herodias. It's it's what she's about to do to demonstrate that her conscience is seared. And what she's about to do isn't a spur of the moment, off the cuff kind of thing. It's planned and premeditated. It's a seared conscience in action. And when the scene opens now in verse 21, she is off stage, but she's about to take center stage and upstage Herod at his own party, even though she isn't invited. It's a men-only affair. The, 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 all, the kingdom, all the kingdom somebodies are there. Notice here, we've got the nobles, the military commanders, the local dignitaries. These are the big men on campus. These are the movers and shakers. These are the power players. And they've all been invited by Herod to celebrate Herod on the occasion of his birthday. It's late into the evening. All the food has been eaten. And now the drinking begins. And Herodias' daughter is dancing. Not the waltz, not the cha-cha, not the macarena. This is a dance with evil, sinful intent. This is a dance with the devil intended to seduce her own stepdad. Until she has him wrapped around her little finger. And that's what happens. Herod is so delighted with and taken with his stepdaughter that he promises two different times, Mark tells us, two different times to give her anything she wants up to half his kingdom, which, by the way, is not his to give. So she runs out to mom and she asks, What should I ask for? And here it is. Here is the moment Herodias has been waiting for. Her one shining moment. It is payback time. After all these months of waiting, she will seize the moment because, as they say, revenge is a dish best served cold. Her depravity is met with opportunity And so she says to her daughter, ask for the head of John the Baptist. It's a scene ripped from the pages of those glossy gossip magazines in checkout lines. It's got everything, sex, power, pride, and murder. It's the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness, playing itself out in high definition, bumping up against the kingdom of God. When Herodias When Herodias' daughter immediately runs back to the party 
and says to her stepfather, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter now. And Herod is stunned. He immediately regrets his promise. The text says he's exceedingly sorry. He knows the killing John is wrong, but with all the kingdom power brokers watching, he chooses to save face rather than save John's head. He dispatches the executioner to the dungeon, and with one fell swoop of the sword, John loses his head. The preacher is silenced. The executioner carries the bloody, severed head of John the Baptist back into the party on a platter and gives it to the stepdaughter who in turn presents it to her mother as a trophy. John's disciples take his mutilated body and lie it in a, lay it in a tomb. It's all so shocking, so startling, so revolting. But that's a seared conscience in action. Listen, please. I plead with you to listen. When we turn down its warning signals for so long, the conscience eventually powers off, leaving us at the mercy of our own depravity. Shocking. But listen, this isn't just the story of a dysfunctional royal family in some far-off land silencing a powerful preacher. This is the story of us. Mark doesn't just want us to know how John the Baptist dies. Mark wants us to walk away from this room this morning impacted by this graphic scene. It's meant to shock us and startle us and to stick with us because it's a picture of the kingdom war that's being waged within us. And so as we leave this room this morning, two takeaways. Number one, take sin seriously. Take sin seriously. Jesus does. That's why he dies. Do we take sin seriously? Let me just pause right here and ask the hard but essential question. Is there sin you're harboring? Your conscience Initially, it was screaming. But over weeks or months or years, you've turned it down. Is there sin you need to repent of this morning? Will you take sin seriously? Because for Herod, it all starts so innocently. With just wanting a woman that wasn't his to have, his own brother's wife. 
And what happens when she becomes his wife? She knows where he is vulnerable. She knows the lust in his heart that drew him to her. And she capitalizes on that lust when she sends her own daughter in to dance for daddy. What goes around comes around. You mess around with lust, guys, and you think it's a small thing? You think you can toy with it on your computer screen or on your phone or on an out-of-town business trip? And you think you've got it under control? You think you can manage it? You think you can build a fence around it to where it's only about you and your kingdom? Listen, guys, I've been around long enough to see men who've been there believing they were untouchable as the king of their own kingdom and the master of their own fate. And now their kingdom's all blown up. They've lost it all. Their marriage, their kids, their job, and some have lost their own life. God is serious when he says in Galatians 6 verse 7, Do not be deceived, I am not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. No sin is ever a small thing. It may seem small, it may start small, just a glance, just a touch, just a night, but sin never stays small or ends small. Just ask Herod. Guys, how you doing? Ladies, there's a kingdom war being waged on the turf of your hearts as well. You harbor a grudge, and you think it's a small thing. You think it's manageable, controllable. When you let anger simmer, when you let bitterness take hold, but eventually vengeance takes root. And when it does, it takes control, and it consumes you. But not just you. Now it affects your marriage and your family and your workplace and your church. Remember this. There's always an expanding debris field left in the wake of sin. You know why? Because there's always a progression to sin. One sin left alone will inevitably give birth to another, and then another, and another. And when you begin to justify one sin, you can justify two, and then three. You see, that's what sin does. You're never its master. It's always master over you. Exacting from you more than you will ever be willing to pay. Because that's the way things work in this world's kingdom. But I don't leave you with bad news. I leave you with good news. Because in Jesus there is grace greater than our sin. Amen?
The only way to effectively combat that sin that is after you and wants you and will consume you is to not just take your sin seriously, but to take Jesus seriously. Mark chapter 6 is not the end of Herod's story. Because Herod will meet Jesus face to face on the night Jesus is betrayed and arrested. And on that night, Herod will stand before Jesus. Before the one who can free him from his guilt and his sin. Before the one who can overthrow the kingdom of darkness in Herod's heart. The one who will welcome Herod into God's eternal kingdom if only he will repent. If only in faith he will swear allegiance to King Jesus. But no, Herod will be the king of his own kingdom. It's what we read in Luke 23 verses 8 through 11. Now, before I read this to you, I want you to see, I want to ask you to notice the parallels between Jesus, between Herod and Jesus, and Herod and John. Because when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, just like when he would hear John. For he had long desired to see Jesus. Because he had heard about him. Where do you think Herod heard about Jesus? From John. And Herod now is hoping to see some sign done by him to be wowed. Just to toy with truth a little more. And so he questioned Jesus at some length. And here are five of the most haunting words in all the Bible. But Jesus gave him no answer. Wow. To have the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, the friend of sinners, standing in front of you and not respond to you. You're King Herod. Glad to see Jesus, glad to speak to Jesus, But you hear nothing but the deafening sound of silence from Jesus. It's chilling. But here's the point. Herod is treating Jesus just as he treated John and his message about Jesus. And friends, there are times when we think that the conscience we've turned down for so long, that at any time in the future, we can turn it back up again and respond later. This text tells us differently. Here, Herod stands before Jesus and repeats how he responded to John. The die has been cast. Herod's fate has been sealed. The door to repentance has slammed shut. Because Luke tells us that Herod with his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. 
And then arraying Jesus in splendid clothing, Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate. Herod sends Jesus away to his death just like he did with John. And that's why something eternally serious is happening every time we come into this room and open God's Word when He speaks to us. And that's why something eternally serious is happening every time we leave this room after God has spoken to us. A kingdom war is being waged in our hearts and for our hearts. And how we respond this morning will set the stage for how we respond next week and the next week all the way into eternity. And so I plead with you this morning, take Jesus seriously. And take your sin seriously. Perpetually repenting of it. Constantly lopping off the head of those sins that are dogging you by owning those sins and turning from them in repentance because you will live for the glory of one. You will swear allegiance to one king and one kingdom, the eternal king who reigns over an eternal kingdom. You will swear allegiance to King Jesus and King Jesus alone. And when you do, you can claim the promise of 1 Timothy 5, verses 10 and 11. That in the war being waged in your heart, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish you. To Him will be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, take these truths, take this graphic, chilling, grotesque scene and use it in us and for us. And Lord, may you do a work in our hearts. Can I ask you this morning, what is this text calling you to do? Have you believed on Jesus? Have you trusted in Him? Or do you have to say this morning, I'm like King Herod. I've toyed with the truth. but I haven't personalized the truth. I've tried to undo all my bad by doing more and more good, but my conscience is still after me. I can't do it anymore. Would you hear the call of Jesus? Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's his promise. Would you come to him in faith this morning, right where you are, cry out to him, Save me, a sinner. Would you trust him and become a follower of Jesus? And Christian, how is your conscience this morning? Guys, how are you doing with lust? Ladies, how are you doing with holding grudges, seeking vengeance?
Is your conscience haunting you? Have you been turning it down? I plead with you, don't do that any longer. Tomorrow it may be too late. Would you repent and return to the one who gave himself for you and bow before your king this morning and swear allegiance to him? Father, work in our hearts. Show us the glory of our king and his eternal kingdom. In his name I pray. Amen.